From Kurtco Media. There's no place like Hollywood. Welcome to another special episode of Hollywood Unscripted Stuck at Home and Happy Halloween Week. I'm Jenny Curtis, and today we are celebrating by virtually sitting down with a powerhouse multi-hyphenate, Zoe Lister-Jones. She's the writer and director of The Craft Legacy, the upcoming sequel to the 90s classic The Craft. Not only that, but she is an actor of stage and screen, writer, producer, director, musician. You've seen her work in Life in Pieces, New Girl, Band-Aid, Lola Verses, and so much more. Zoe, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So... You wear a lot of hats, and it appears that you can rock them all. (laughs) But I want to start at the beginning. You grew up with artistic parents. Did you know the creative path that you were going to take from childhood until now? I think I did. I mean, I had, as any of us do, a roller coaster of career ambitions. (laughs) And there was a time that I definitely felt clear that I didn't want to be in the arts. I think I was really interested in writing, but I was raised by two artists, as you mentioned, and, you know, the struggle was real. (laughs) And I think I really wanted to avoid a path that would lead to financial insecurity and instability because it didn't make for a fun childhood. And I just was like really seeking stability. I think I had auditioned for Tisch School of the Arts at NYU in the acting program. I ended up getting a scholarship to go there and I like didn't want to go because <laughs> I told my mom like maybe I should like do like pre-law or like pre-med. Like I was just like so at that point in my life, like I knew that I loved it, had a passion for it, but I was really afraid of what it would mean for me. And she, in a total reversal of what most parents would say, was like, no, you have to pursue the arts. <laughs> so I did. I-, I ended up going to Tish and you know, I'm really happy that I did. How did she convince you? I think she was just like, this is an amazing opportunity and you're being given a scholarship and we can't really afford any of the other schools. So it's like that or state school, baby. And uh, <laughs> and so I, I did it. But yeah, I think she has always been, my dad too, just so supportive of me as an artist. And I've learned so much from both of them as an artist. And I really credit so much of who I am as a filmmaker with the ways that they've inspired and influenced me. If you could boil that down to a specific point, what would you say is at the core of them teaching you to be an artist? Oh, that's deep. Well, I guess for both of them, even though neither of them could support themselves with their art, they had no choice but to make it. It was a lifeline. It was the only way and continues to be the only way that both of them could process their pain. And I think that I feel similarly. And I'm surprised every time that I enter into a new project as a writer, the things like that come up that I'm trying to work through and process that are really old, that totally surprise me. Like I don't go into a project being like, this is what I'm going to work through. (laughs) Um, But even like with something like The Craft Legacy, you know, I started that writing process and was so surprised by what was coming up for me in that process. And so, yeah, I, I feel like it is such an essential part of my life's work just on a personal level. And I think that is what I learned from my parents. Thank you for jumping in with that, like right off the bat. (laughs) (laughs) It's an early morning question. Yeah. 
So after NYU, you were in New York doing theater. You made your Broadway debut. And that is a very different world than the one you're in now. Yeah. I'd love to hear if anything stuck with you from it. Did you take anything from the world of theater to the world of TV and film? The first thing I did out of acting school was a one-woman show, which I know is sort of like a parody of an actor's journey, but it, it was the first thing I did. And it's how I got my first agent and manager. And I wrote it and produced it and starred in it. And so I think from the jump, theater was already a stepping stone to creating my own work. But then I then got to work with incredible playwrights like Christopher Durang and Douglas Carter Bean and Teresa Rebeck. And what's so exciting about theater is that you are really in process with the writer. Like the rehearsal process is so involved with the playwright that that was really cool to just see that firsthand, the way that a story could change and unfold in that way. And actually my NYU monologue was a Christopher Durang monologue. So it was wild. You know, I was getting to like meet my idols and pick their brains. It was such a boot camp for me on so many levels. And then the first TV show I got was a show called Whitney on NBC. It was created by Whitney Cummings and that was filmed in front of a live studio audience. So my experience in theater was really helpful there because it was basically like putting on a play every day. And with Whitney, she was the creator of the show and the star, which is not dissimilar from things that you've done. So did you kind of learn from her how to wear the multiple hats while creating a project? Yeah, watching what she had done, we were the same age, you know, so it was really inspiring to see her take that world by storm. I mean, that year, she not only created and starred in Whitney, but she created Two Broke Girls. She was creating an empire at such a young age as a young woman. So I definitely was inspired and awed by her. I learned so much from her and I continue to, and she's a dear friend of mine. Do you have a favorite memory from working on Whitney? Whitney and I went to a strip club. (laughs) I had been to one in college, but I'd never been to one in LA. And the dancers there were all such big fans of Whitney. It was like we had found like our, our people and it was so much fun. And we were the only women in the club. So it was like we got to have this like real girl bond with the dancers. And uh, I don't know, that was the first thing that came to mind. <laughs> was that like blowing off steam from the week of work? Yeah. <laughs> Before you came to L.A., though, you were home in New York and creating projects with your now-husband, Daryl Wine. And the first film you made together, Breaking Upwards, was based on your own relationship story. And you made this on a crazy low budget. It was $15,000, right? Yeah. Which is an absurdly low amount of money to make a film for. And you had names in it and locations and it's beautifully shot. And I would just love to hear about how you made it happen. Yeah, it was such a special project. I've had so many mentors, but the way that Daryl taught me the world of micro-budget filmmaking was so influential in the rest of my career, especially in making Band-Aid. You know, talking about art being a way to process the personal, that was... (laughs) was that on like steroids. My now husband and I had been dating for two years and we decided to enter into an open relationship. And during the course of that open relationship, Daryl started writing about it and started writing a screenplay. And I was like, I want nothing to do with this. It's already difficult enough (laughs) to live. Like I don't need to be also narrating it. But then after some time, he actually showed me the screenplay and I read it and I was like, well, that's not actually how it went down. So I was like, I need to come in here and tell the story. 
So then we collaborated on the script, which was a really interesting therapeutic process. And then at the time I was in an off-Broadway play, which was the Christopher Durang play. I was always juggling those worlds at that time. I was doing a lot of theater. And so I was doing eight shows a week while we were shooting that film. And the cast, I was so lucky to get because I had worked with them all in theater. You know, there are a lot of Broadway and off-Broadway heavyweights in that film. So we basically had to shoot on Sunday nights and Mondays <laughs> because that was all of our off days. Wow. The scheduling alone was so crazy, but we basically found a crew of two people on Craigslist who worked for free. <laughs> I mean, we all were working for free. Daryl had met our DP on that film, Alex Bergman. He was, I think, 19. And he worked at the local P.O. Box in the West Village. And Daryl had made a short film and was sending it to film festivals. They started talking because Alex was a real cinephile. And Daryl was like, we should make a movie together. And it was just like that. And so then Alex bought a camera and we just started shooting. Like we had a script, which was important. And we had Daryl and I as the stars. So we had our foundation. And then it was really just about learning a lot as we went and making it for as little as we possibly could. So part of what's so exciting about making films in that way is the way that everyone just shows up. It's what I love about filmmaking in general is that a group of people sort of have to function as this one singular organism. And that was the first experience I had had in that way. I had done some indie films as an actor, but to be telling you know, a version of our story and to be telling it in that fashion was thrilling and super challenging. <laughs> and then ultimately opened a lot of doors for us. It was gratifying. How long did you have to shoot for getting to only shoot two days a week? We shot for like a couple months. I mean, it was really run and gun. So on our Sundays and Mondays, we were getting a lot done. <laughs> our play schedules ended up closing in time where like we got to shoot a little more towards the end of our shoot and the rest of our actors were all in various schedules. But yeah, we were just like shooting in our friends' houses. It was just calling so many favors, <laughs> which then we you know, had to repay. Was it easier or harder or neither having to drop into a character that is basically you? Mm -hmm. Do you think there was more resistance to go there or was it easier to embody her? It wasn't difficult to embody her. <laughs> I'm a deeply feeling person and I feel pretty openly. <laughs> so as an actor, it's somewhere that I can put those emotions in a way that's often helpful for me <laughs> because there doesn't seem to be a container large enough for my feelings in real life. <laughs> so no, it, I think the thing that was more difficult was performing things that had happened in our real life that were quite painful. And even though our crew was so tiny, we were still performing it on a public stage. And then putting the film out there was even more public. And that was even more challenging for different reasons. Was it then more gratifying for the same reasons? It was gratifying, but it was really difficult. We traveled all over the world with that film to film festivals, which was so exciting. You know, it was the dream. But we also then sort of became spokespeople for non-monogamy in a way that I don't think we necessarily understood we would become. And film festivals are so much about Q&As and press and stuff. And so I think because of the nature of the film, we were expected to answer very personal questions a lot of the time. So I think that's where it became difficult. And then with Lola Versus, you went a completely different route where it was a studio film and a very different experience, I'm assuming, than creating a project on $15,000. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about that? 
Yeah, Lola versus was a totally different experience. It was super exciting because we were such fans of Fox Searchlight's films. And so to work with them was like a dream come true for us. I think Lola Versus sort of stemmed from Breaking Upwards. It was a little bit of a continuation in certain ways because I wanted to make a film that dealt with a woman's experience of being single (laughs) more than that that shared experience. And it was really exciting because we wrote the screenplay and it was on the blacklist, which is a high honor in our industry. And it got a lot of attention. And then when Fox Searchlight came on board, it was just like, oh my God, you know, like this is the stuff that dreams are made of. And then casting it, you know, getting Greta Gerwig and... And Deborah Winger and these people that I think we so admired was really thrilling. But yes, it was a challenging experience in ways that you'll hear many filmmakers who go from indie filmmaking, especially micro-budget filmmaking, to the studio world. It's just a lot more cooks in the kitchen and it's really filmmaking by committee, which is always a difficult transition to make and something that I think is a steep learning curve of how to navigate trusting your own instincts while still being respectful to the people who are giving you the resources to make the film. Hi, I'm Robert Ross, host of Cars That Matter. You might be wondering what makes a car matter, and I have a feeling you already know the answer. Some cars have changed history. Some you can hear a mile away. Some have lines that make your heart skip a beat. If a car has ever made you look twice, then I think you know the ones that matter. Join me as I speak with designers, collectors, and market experts about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. Cars That Matter, wherever you get your podcasts. So writing and producing is one facet of you, and then there are times where you're on set strictly as an actress. One of your shows is Life in Pieces, which I'll admit I hadn't watched until we booked this, but then I binged two and a half seasons. No way. (laughs) It is such a great show. Oh, thanks. But I'd love to hear more about Life in Pieces and what it was like being on set working in such a great ensemble. It was really a dream job. And I still consider that cast and crew my family. We shot for four seasons, which is the longest run I've had on a series. And yeah, I think that ensemble of actors was so brilliant. Again, I was like meeting so many of my idols. I mean, to work with Diane Weist was just, I like pinched myself every day. But just the entire cast. Colin Hanks, obviously I had the most to do with and we spent just a phenomenal amount of time together. And that was such a blessing, really. Working in an ensemble like that as an actor is really a dream. The dynamics that you get to play off of are just so electric if you you know, are lucky enough to be working with actors like I was. I made Band-Aid in the summer between season one and two and then was like cutting it when I was doing season two. So I was always straddling. Like It was really nice to just come and get to be like an actor with my television family. Do you ever go to a set where you're strictly an actor and then have to actively try to keep your producer brain off because it's not your set? Oh, yeah, for sure. But that's also just me being like a control freak. (laughs) You know, when I made Band-Aid, because I also acted in it, I was asked, was that difficult to be in scenes where you were directing your scene partner? And I was like, absolutely not. That's what I do in my head most of the time. (laughs) But no, I think if you're in good hands as an actor, you don't have to be worrying about those things very much. And it was a pretty smooth ship. (laughs) 
So Band-Aid, which is such a great film, it's like one of those movies that I, I just I desperately want to be in, oh. but it's already made. <laughs> I loved the movie. You wrote it, directed it, produced it, and starred in it. You hired an all-female crew, which is awesome. And you stacked the cast with friends you'd worked with from all walks of your career, from Whitney to Life in Pieces to New Girl. So I imagine that the environment on set was kind of just one big supportive hug. (laughs) (laughs) What was it like having that be your directorial debut? Well, it was intentional that I created a space that felt really supportive because I think for anyone's directorial debut, that is so important. But I think especially for a woman director, I think what I had witnessed with other women directors, there's a lot of doubts cast, uh, even if they're unconscious. There's a lot of questioning and I wanted to set myself up to succeed in the best way I possibly could. And I think I've had incredible collaborators who are men, but I was really interested in what it would feel like to be surrounded by exclusively women. And it exceeded my expectations. It was really one of the most thrilling and fulfilling and nourishing creative experiences in my life. And as I said, I think I learned a lot from Breaking Upwards. We had financiers who were men who were very gracious in that I said that they weren't allowed to come to set (laughs) and they were executive producers, but that was my rule. It was like at Monitor, we have women. And that was really important to me. I think it was a really personal story for me and because I was also performing in it, I had so much on my plate. I wanted this story to be told by women. And I met so many important collaborators that I've now worked with since on nearly every project. And so in that sense, it's always so exciting to find your people and to find your filmmaking community. And then in terms of the cast, I'm so lucky to have so many talented actors as friends. So I really just did call all my friends. and say, do you want to shoot for a day? And everyone was really down in a great way. The only person I didn't know was Fred Armisen. I knew Natasha Leone. I've known her for a long time. And so she helped me a little bit there. But yeah, that took a little more convincing because he was like, who are you and what do you offer me? <laughs> I was like, I want you to play drums live. <laughs> you played the music live? We played the music live. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's exciting. It was super fun because we were basically like giving little mini concerts for our crew. <laughs> How did you get the seed of this idea where this couple has been fighting and then rather than continue fighting, they decide to turn all of their fights into song and sing it at each other. Well, I've been in and out of bands my whole life. I love music. Music is a huge part of my life and has been since I can remember. And I love writing songs and filmmaking is really hard. (laughs) So I was thinking about what I wanted to write. I was looking to enjoy the process in a way that I maybe had lost sight of a little bit. And so much of the process of filmmaking is product oriented. And I really wanted to be able to live more in process on Band-Aid. And the thing that I knew that I was craving and missed doing was writing music. So I wanted to figure out a way to incorporate that into a narrative. And I also am endlessly fascinated by the nuances of relationships. (laughs) So it was those two things. And really with Daryl, we'd made a number of films that deal with those nuances. And I think in this one, I I was interested in the ways that couples fight more specifically because I think it also speaks to the ways that they love. And I wanted to explore a couple in conflict through comedy. (laughs) It was really fun. Thanks. Did you know you were going to direct it while you were writing it? No. 
When did you decide? In all of my experiences, when I decide to like take something on that scares me, I have to have some like voices in my ear. And I think that's true of a lot of women because of the ways that we are discouraged throughout our lives or taught to second guess our ambitions. And I think just like our perfectionism in general stops us from feeling that we're capable of making mistakes. There was a producer named Alex Madigan, who's still an amazing producer, who said to me sort of out of the blue when we were having coffee, like, you should direct. And I was just like, wait, what? <laughs> you know, like I had thought that, but I think sometimes it does take hearing that and hearing it strongly. That really sat with me. And I think as I was writing it, I didn't think that. And then once I finished the script, I was like, oh yeah, I could do this, you know, and it would be fun to do and it will be scary to do. And I think I'm a very fearful person, but part of, I think the reason why I became an actor to begin with is that I've learned that the things that scare me most are things that I should probably do. Then you stuck with it. And this week, The Craft Legacy is coming out, yeah, which is a sequel to the 90s hit classic, The Craft. So let's start at the beginning there. How did you go from not thinking about directing to directing your indie film Band-Aid and now being on this really major reboot of a classic film with a studio with Blumhouse? It's actually a co-production between Blumhouse and Columbia Pictures. Band-Aid opened doors for me in a way that was really gratifying and exciting. And so The Craft Legacy came to me. I was asked if I wanted to pitch a take on what a reimagining of the film would look like. And immediately I jumped at the opportunity because I am a huge fan of the original and I came of age in the 90s. And I think having seen Get Out and what Blumhouse did with Get Out, I'm not a genre buff, but Get Out was such a revelation. I think it's a perfect film. And it taught me, just as a consumer of cinema, the power of genre filmmaking, that it could serve as social commentary. And so all of the issues that I wanted to be funneling into my work, this seemed like a perfect opportunity to honor like a title that is so exciting and fun and spoke to me personally on, on many levels. When you got the call that they wanted you to pitch an idea for the craft, how did you find it? How did you get to where you got? This movie is about magic and witchcraft. And I think there is something magical that happens in the writing process where you sort of download things that like don't know where they come from. <laughs> At least that happens to me. I think that happens to a lot of writers. I think pretty immediately the story came to me. And it was a story that I didn't realize there were elements of it that I was processing from my own adolescence. And I think I am still very much dealing with my inner teenage girl, <laughs> you know, uh, she still has like a lot to say and a lot to work through. Don't we all? And so <laughs> <laughs> it happened fairly naturally in terms of the general outline and then filling in the details of it was a little more involved and challenging and figuring out how I wanted to incorporate the original, if at all. And you did kind of have to walk this fine line of paying homage to the original and creating your own story. So what was it to walk that line? How did you decide what you were going to pull from the original and what you were going to bring in from your own mind? I wanted the film to stand on its own. 
And I wanted it to feel that it lived in a really contemporary landscape. But I also wanted to give Easter eggs to fans of the original and allow for some of the fun of the original to enter into this retelling. So yeah, it was definitely a fine line, but it was a cool challenge. I've never even created anything out of IP or like, you know, it's always just been something that I could create from my own imagination. So this was a cool challenge to be working with something that was already in existence and also already beloved. (laughs) It's a big responsibility to take that on, but I think you did a beautiful job with it. Was this also your first time working with VFX? Yeah, my first time working with VFX, which was really exciting. Artists have an amazing opportunity always to dive into our imaginations. If we're lucky, we get to do that for a living. And if, you know, even if you're not making a living from it, just creating art in any medium is like getting to access that part of your brain is such a gift. And with VFX is a whole other level where you get to like imagine the unimaginable, which I had never been given the opportunity to do. It took a little while for me to give myself permission to go beyond the scope of indie filmmaking in that way, or not even indie filmmaking, but just like, what would my teenage girl self want to do magically? And then you have this incredible team of people who are like, yes, we can make that happen. You know, it's just so phenomenal. A Moment of Your Time, a new podcast from Kurt Co Media. Currently 21 years old, and today I felt like I'm magic extended from her fingertips down to the you base of my spine. You have to take care spine. of yourself because the world needs you and Trust your Trust me, voice. every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my but dream. fingers were facing me. You can feel like your purpose and your worth is really being questioned. going to stop me from playing the piano. She buys walkie-talkies. Wonders to whom she should give the second dice. Cats don't love humans. We never did. We never will. We just find the ones that are... The beauty of rock climbing is that you can only focus on what's right in life. And so our American life begins. We may need to stay apart, but let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at kirkcocom slash a moment of your time. What was it like directing and not acting in it? Did that make it a different experience this time around? It was nice. You know, I mean, I love acting. It's really an important part of my catharsis, as I mentioned. But yeah, I think this film in particular, the scope of it was so large. And what I was seeking to accomplish was so great that I think it was helpful for me to be able to be behind the camera. But there are definitely times that I like wanted to jump in there. And Kaylee Spaney, who plays Lily, who's the most brilliant young actress, and I'm just so excited for the world to see her. I mean, she's already been in a number of films, but she and I had such a close working relationship. I think my experience as an actor, even though I wasn't in front of the camera, I would like run in and we would like sort of get into it before I'd call action as performers. And she would come to my house every weekend and we would run scenes together and I would act opposite her. And so I think it still came into this filmmaking experience, even though it wasn't recorded. (laughs) Her first scene in the film where they're in this car and she's just riding this line of emotion back and forth. And it's just, it's so powerful. Oh, yeah. She's so good. Yeah, she's a marvel. I mean, the whole coven brought so much to each of their characters that is just so nuanced and the chemistry is so incredible. And I'm just lucky to know them. 
They are really powerful young women. I wanted to talk about a specific moment in the film, and I don't think this gives anything away. But the scene in the bathroom where Tabby is giving the shorts to Lily, and it's this moment of kindness. And I just want to commend you because in a different script, you can see this scene coming from a mile away where she's in need and the girls bring her shorts and then she doesn't respond. So, you know, Tabby teasingly says, oh, I guess you didn't need it and turns to walk away, which forces Lily to have to emerge to forge their friendship. And you didn't do that. You just kind of said, "Okay, I'll hand you this under the stall. And it was this moment of genuine kindness between women Mm. that you just don't see in movies. I don't even know if I have a question, but it just (laughs) struck me so deeply because it was so small, but so powerful. Thank you. Yeah, that um, I think it was important in the reimagining of this film to create a narrative in which women supported and upheld each other against all odds. And that women coming into their power didn't mean that that power was too overwhelming and that they would have to use it against each other. So I'm glad that that resonated with you. And I think for me as an adolescent, women were my lifeline. I had a very close group of other weirdo girls (laughs) (laughs) that shielded me from a lot of stuff and supported me and protected me. And so I wanted to represent that sort of bond in this film. With that, Because like I said, in media, we see often these microaggressions between women. Did you ever have to train yourself out of that thought process? Like, I know your mother was a feminist and you were raised as a strong woman, but we're so battered with these kind of ideals of women cutting each other down unintentionally. I guess, did you actively have to train yourself out of that or was that just something you know how to do? As a filmmaker? Yeah, or anything, yeah. Well, my mom is a video artist and, as you mentioned, a feminist. She taught me from a very young age about representation of women in media and how important it was and how damaging it could be when filtered through the male gaze. So I guess I've always been really aware of the stories that I want to tell and how I want to tell them. And yeah, I think now more than ever, like women in community is just the most important (laughs) message. I mean, there are many important messages, but not only women, but I think the collective over the individual is so important. And that is something that I wanted to represent in this film. And that when we are working in community, we are so much stronger. I want to circle back to maybe some lighter (laughs) questions. Do you have any good luck thing that you do or maybe a superstition that you have when you're starting a project? Like, for example, on days that I'm recording, I wear really stupid socks. So there are unicorns (laughs) on my socks today. So do you have anything like that that's maybe your... um, Eccentricities? Eccentricities. Thank you. Yeah. I definitely like give objects meaning. So I won't wear like a silly sock, but I definitely like look at like the shirt that I'm wearing and I think about what meaning that shirt has for me. (laughs) And if it's like good juju or bad juju (laughs) to bring with me onto the set. My cast gave me a really beautiful crystal before we started shooting. And so I carried that with me on set and I would hold it (laughs) when I needed some extra strength. 
And we had three occult consultants who are all practicing witches. Two of them gave us each talismans. And Pam Grossman, who's one of them, gave us actually crystals, which we all carried with us. And then Erin Fogel, who was our Canadian witch, she led us in an intention setting ceremony the night before our first day of production. And it was a number of my department heads and then the coven and my producing partner. So it was about 10 of us women in my house. She created an altar and led us in like this incredible ceremony at the end of which we made our own personal talismans that we carried with us on set. So (laughs) we had a lot of little things that we did carry on this movie in particular, which I think I'll carry into the next one. What goes on in an intention setting ceremony? I feel like covens are very private about like those rituals, but I will say that part of what we did was talk about what we wished for in this process and what our fears were, which was really such an important moment to share in collective. It was amazing to be that vulnerable with each other. We all did like weep at one point or another because creation of any art is scary. You know, there's like a lot at stake and there's a lot of vulnerability that goes into it. And so it was such a powerful moment to share and something that I was like, why don't we do this before every (laughs) film, you know? So you think you'll hang on to that for future films? For sure. I mean, on the first day of shooting, I did pause and say to the entire crew, which was quite large on this film, I led them in a breathing exercise, which I hadn't done before, where we all just like grounded our feet and took a number of deep breaths in and out together. And it was really sweet because I guess when you're working with crew that you haven't worked before, especially as a woman, you know, there's a lot of dudes, (laughs) not on Band-Aid, obviously, but, you know, on my project since then, there are still a lot of dudes and I never know how those things will be received you know and I think as a woman director you are constantly as a woman in general you are constantly having to sort of view yourself through two lenses like your own lens and then how you're being perceived and so you know when I led that the crew and that I was working in in Toronto it was like there was a lot of unknowns for me there and I didn't know if people would be like oh this is like woo woo or like this just like feels like bullshit and then a number of the men requested it on the day's following, which it was really beautiful, you know, that it was really embraced because it is always incredibly stressful, you know, and and a harried environment of just like, gotta make our day, gotta make our day. And so to take the beginning of each day to sort of just like take a breath before you get into the mania is helpful. On Band-Aid, I led everyone in a dance (laughs) the first day. So I do tend to like to start a production with everyone in community. I know that's coming up a lot, but like doing something to center ourselves and start working together in a way that is sort of vulnerable. When you say you're viewing yourself through these two lenses, and one of which is how you're being perceived, I think a lot of us do that and we let it stop us. So how do you overcome that fear and that letting yourself be stopped by how you're perceived? Well, I credit my mom <laughs> again because she really taught me that any obstacle that I faced was one that I could ultimately overcome. And I think it requires mentorship ultimately because I don't think that the society we live in teaches women those lessons. I still, though, am not immune to it. You know what I mean? Like, I struggle with self-doubt like everybody else. And I think it's just a constant battle, I think, to just be hyper-vigilant with yourself and say that there are so many doors that will close. In this industry, there are so many no's. There's just way more no's than yeses. And it's incredibly painful. And I think 
I witnessed both of my parents' pain in those no's. But I think that also taught me to really try to just not take no for an answer, which was also a part of Breaking Upwards and Band-Aid. I mean, Breaking Upwards, nobody wanted to make. You know, like we had a script that we tried to take out there. Nobody wanted to make it. So we made it ourselves out of necessity. Band-Aid, nobody wanted to make either. I took it to a number of producers and nobody wanted to make it. And then I decided to make it myself. And once I had the budget and the crew and the cast, we went to a financier company and said, this is the least amount of money we need. Are you interested in stepping up? But every single time it's been, (laughs) even the movies that have gotten made have come out of rejection. (laughs) So, um, you know, I think it is just the job, sadly, of an artist to have to really battle the pain that comes with that rejection. And if you can push through it to try to persevere. Do you have any plans for Halloween? (laughs) Well, I'm probably going to watch The Craft Legacy. Not that I haven't seen it 1,000 times, but it is really exciting that it's going to be out on Halloween. And we have a projector in our backyard. So I was thinking about having some friends socially distanced and just be able to celebrate it. Yeah. Yeah. So I always wrap up on the same question because it is my favorite question to ask. What does it mean to you to have a life in storytelling? I guess it means that I have a great responsibility to not only myself, but like the world at large. (laughs) My mom taught me that the personal is political and I stand by that. And it is our responsibility as artists to tell stories that speak to our own personal journeys while still speaking to, I think, what the world might need at any moment. And so I I guess that is the bridge that I try to (laughs) traverse with my work as best as I can. And I don't always do it successfully, but there's so much pain in the world and there's so much injustice. And I do think that there's a way to make work that is both entertaining and can speak to to some of that. Zoe Lister-Jones, thank you so much for joining me today. I really admire the work that you do and the way that you do it. And I just appreciate all of the insight you have come to us with. So thank you. Thank you so much. It was so nice to talk to you. The Craft Legacy comes out on VOD on October 28th at midnight. So if you are a night owl, which I am not, you should watch it then. Otherwise, watch it the next morning. Thank you, Zoe. Thank you so much. Hollywood Unscripted was created by Kurt Co. Media. This special episode of the Stuck at Home series was hosted and produced by me. Jenny Curtis. With guest, Zoe Lister-Jones. Co-produced and edited by Jay Whiting. The executive producer of Hollywood Unscripted is Stuart Halperin. The Hollywood Unscripted theme song is by Celeste and Eric Dick. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any special episodes of Hollywood Unscripted Stuck at Home. And we want to hear from you. Leave us a rating and a review. Stay safe and healthy, and thanks for listening. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind.